0: You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio, on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. It is not every day that an award-winning international composer enthusiastically returns my email request to come and chat on the show, so I was super thrilled and just a tad nervous to get to talk to Fred Onoveroswoki, otherwise known as Fredo, who just happens to live in St. Louis and whose music I heard, thanks to French horn player Amanda Collins, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, and she introduced me to Fredo's arrangement of Lift Every Voice and Sing. So as Fredo is almost a local, I got in touch and asked if we could chat. And he said yes. Good morning, Fredo, And thank you so much for chatting to me. It is really such an honour to have you on the show.
1: Oh, no, thank you for having me. The honor is all mine.
0: <laughs> well, you are truly a global citizen, a bit like me. Your parents are from Ghana. You were brought up in both Ghana and Nigeria, but you've made America your home for the last 30 years. And you describe yourself as an immigrant composer. Now, I, too, am an immigrant, but I still think of myself more as a foreigner or as a <laughs> European. <laughs> Why do you choose to identify as an immigrant over an African or a Ghanaian Nigerian composer?
1: Well, you hear it from my accent. It's exactly suckler immigrant, so I choose what I sound like and what I look like and what I write like. An immigrant composer.
0: <laughs> but you're also an African composer.
1: I'm an African composer in a Pan-African sense, In, in uh, meaning I've travelled across the continent, I've imbibed a lot of different mannerisms, and I'm able to write in different things I've seen in different parts of the beautiful, beautiful continent.
0: Now, your, your compositions are played by orchestras all over the world, and you have traveled extensively to research what you call traceable musical Africanisms. So tell me about some of the far flung places you have found traceable musical Africanisms and what exactly you're looking for?
1: A traceable Africanism is jazz, is calypso, is salsa, is merengue, is reggaeton, you know. So, I mean, I can go on and on and on. In other words, art forms, cultural styles that were brought to the new world by the early Africans slaves you know to the Americas not just the United States but all of the Americas you know so these have become combined with other european and indigenous style to create new forms so um those are what i call africanisms uh they could be some in some areas like in brazil in some areas like in cuba in santeria they could be very very purist in nature but in some areas uh, they could be mutated as in jazz, as in gospel, as in rock time. So, th- all of it is Africanism.
0: Now, I mean, musical Africanisms isn't only a historical artifact. I mean, it's a living organism across Absolutely. Africa. So, there are still musical Africanisms being created, new ones, every every day. What are you seeing coming out of Africa that is uh, going to be the next wave of what goes out around the world,
1: you know, Africa is a very, interesting place right now. I like to see Africa as um, as being influenced by the prodigal son who returned home <laughs> and is taking over. Meaning, Africa, most of Africa has, I mean, has imbibed what's going on in America, what's going on in Europe, what's going on in Korea, K-pop, and they are now using these styles that have come home to really reinvent themselves. You know, so uh, translation, things are just changing because of the influx of new ideas, and they're combining these new ideas with their indigenous drums, rhythms, to create new styles. So it it changes so rapidly.
0: Right. I've heard you describe classical music as supreme art music. Can you explain what you mean by that?
1: Well, supreme, supreme, it can, it's disciplined, you know, and uh, it's calculated. It's not necessarily functional, meaning consume and let it go, you know. It's reflective. It's, so that's why it's called art in some areas and disciplined by many people. Um, And that attribute of that music is not exclusive to one culture. You know, I, I try to make that clarification any 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 culture or group can be disciplined be it european latin american african american african asian american any culture can be disciplined can create disciplined art
0: but you're not including popular music in that discipline
1: no no popular music Falls under the category of uh, consumables, if you will. You know, I mean, it's to be enjoyed. It's for a purpose. It's here and it's gone.
0: Do you like popular music?
1: I love popular <laughs> music. Didn't you see? The, didn't you see the list I just gave you? <laughs> K-pop, calypso, reggae, hip hop. You know, you just name it. You know, I love it all. Really. <laughs>
0: what do you listen to in your car?
1: Oh, I love jazz. And I love some, oh, I'm a big, 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 crazy, big fan of Debussy, you know, Stravinsky, you know, Bob Marley, Dennis Brown, you know, uh, Rihanna, Kate Perry, you know, I could go on. (laughs) A polyglot, if you will, you know, I mean, I love to listen to everything, really.
0: (laughs) Is there anything you don't like to listen to?
1: There is nothing I don't. If it's music, I love. I love, you know, as a good, a good rap of my, you know, um, young doll. You would say that's major. You know, everything beautiful is major for me. I want to listen to it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it is classical music which you are known for. At what point in your young life did you think this was your avenue?
1: I don't know. I see in Ghana, I, you know, I grew up a boy soprano and, you know, back in the days, a very rigid British system. So, you know, uh you were exposed to the tediums, the motets, you know, the Palestrines, the bird, the gibbons, talis, and, you know, canticles and things like that, you know, but it was mostly as a boy, boy soprano, you know, it was later... It was later in life, you know. It just happened, really. Just happened. You know, mind you, I trained uh, in engineering, but music never left. So I kept coming back and eventually I decided, this is my home. I better stay in this lane called classical music composition.
0: I think we have this idea of classical music, if you just took a general vox pop, as being a genre that is dominated by 18th and 19th century white men. I call them dusty old men. Um, (laughs) And when you look at the... I
1: didn't say it.
0: (laughs) 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 I say this on almost every show. Um, (laughs) And when you look at the programs of most symphony or philharmonic orchestras around the world, we see the same preponderance of dusty old white men. Yet we also see many orchestras struggling to fill concert halls and struggling Mm. to connect to contemporary, diverse, young audiences. And I'm going to repeat a quote that you gave to Coro Allegro Writer, And it's such a beautiful quote, and I'm going to say it many times over the course of my shows. If every concert hall in America could allow a wide variety of repertoire to come in, could allow a different palette of music to be heard, with influences from the East and the Middle East, from Africa, the Caribbean and Latin America, influences from the wealth of experiences shared by diverse immigrant populations to America, that would be classical music reimagined audience sizes will increase not decrease as the recent trend seems to indicate so my question is why is this such a struggle for orchestras
1: it's it's uh, simple it's <laughs> missed opportunity what a missed opportunity a lot of our orchestras are uh, exhibiting, you know, we have new immigrants, we have new communities moving into our community, and we're missing a chance to engage them, you know. Uh, mind you, classical music, the history of classical music as we know it today, was always changing, you know. Uh, today we talk about Tchaikovsky, we talk about Stravinsky, we uh, we uh talk about Mussorgsky, you know. Mind you, we're not for wonderful music consortium patrons like Sergei Diaghilev, you know, who moved from Russia into the Parisian scene to help promote new kind of music. You see, a lot of this nutcracker we enjoy today wouldn't exist, you know. The the, the, the rights of string, Petrushka, Firebird, they will not exist But for Sergei Gariel and his friends who move over from Russia. So the point meaning that wouldn't it be really nice if orchestras tap into these new communities moving in and program music that reflect them, program new composers, African-American composers, Black composers, Latin-American composers, Asian-American composers, Not not... As a one-off, but on a regular basis. You create, you create an audience by doing things on a regular basis. Not once as a Kwanzaa celebration or once as a Black History Month. So, but a commitment. You see, when you have that commitment, you will attract new audiences to your classical music hall. But I think We're missing that opportunity. And as long as orchestra halls, concert halls miss that opportunity, unfortunately, our audiences for classical music are going to continue to gray, you know, gray Mm. hair, the same old money trying to recycle Mozart and Beethoven and, you know. And that's not the intention of classical music. It's supposed to be organic
0: so how difficult is it as a Black and African composer to get your orchestral work heard?
1: Oh my gosh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a daily endless knocking on the doors, you know, knocking. I like to use the phrase, I'm never tired of knocking at the door of Canon. I'm constantly... You know, talking to people. And I'm also just really, really grateful to have a wonderful network of friends, you know, who are able to tell their friends. And besides, my music tends to speak for itself. You know, that sounds self-serving, but (laughs) uh, people see, people hear and they tell their friends. So I am really very lucky, I must say.
0: Do you think maybe that we're finally at a tipping point in the arts in America and the West? that it 's beginning to see its whiteness and starting to really listen to its black and brown communities and opening doors to black and brown artists and audiences, or do you think it 's going to be business as usual
1: i I, I hope we 're listening <laughs> <laughs> I really hope you know but i 'm also uh, you know I, I try to look at things uh, in a metaphysical way you know in that everything in life tends to have its equilibrium point, you understand at an equilibrium, things got to change, you know, don't matter, you know, how powerful, how resourceful we are. But at every equilibrium point in life, things got to change, you know. Uh, We can go or we can wax historical if you want, but that's what it is. Things got to change. So I hope that we can voluntarily as a society see what's going on right now as Opportunity to be part of instituting change.
0: Well, me too. I'm I'm ready to hear different things when I go and listen to orchestras, and <laughs> and I have loved just hanging out on your website and listening to your music because oh. it, it is very enticing, and I'd love to hear a big orchestra play it. But in in reading about and listening to your work, I heard at least part of your Triptych of American Voices, a cantata for the people. And I'd love to have you talk a little bit about it. So before we listen to a piece, let's start with a little about the backdrop of what was happening culturally, socially, politically at the time you wrote the work and what you wanted audiences to understand.
1: I was commissioned by Coro, as you well know, and the the directives were pretty... Straightforward. Fredo, everybody's very concerned what's going on, you know, in this country, you know, following the 2016 election, you know. And uh, Maestro David Hodgkins gave me Maya Angelou's poem, uh, Why the, the Cage Bird Sings. And then um, one of the singers at Coro gave him to give me um, Langston Hughes' poem. As I grew older, and then they asked me, "Well, you know you 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 get to choose one more poem, and I chose uh, Michael Castro's "We Need to Talk." So those three poems were my guiding post, if you will, uh, to express concern following the twenty sixteen election and where we've gotten ourselves as at that time. The cage bird is a metaphor for you know uh people who a population a populace that's uh imprisoning in itself, yearning to be out like other birds, all the free birds and smell the roses you know so uh uh so th- is the basis why the cage bird sings is the basis for the first movement, and then the second movement. Was inspired by Langston Hughes' poem. As I grew older, and it talks about, in it, uh, it talks about walls that prevents the narrator from his or her dreams. You know, and then the third movement by the glorious poem by Michael Castro, who is St. Louis's. Professor Poet Laureate, actually, and he wrote, uh, he wrote, we need to talk right after the Ferguson riots in St. Louis here, you know. We need to talk is just about getting past the disconnect that ruin our society and just really talking to one another, appreciating one another, so those, those, those are the things that uh, the beacon, the, the guide, impose, if you will, that I had to write the triptych.
0: Well, let's listen to the closing passage from part one of the Triptych of American Voices, performed by the Coro Allegro Orchestra of Boston, with counter Tai Onay, tenor Jonas Burdis, and conducted by David Hodgkins. Part one of the Triptych of American Voices, a cantata for the people by Freddo, performed by the Coro Allegro Orchestra of Boston with counter Tayonet, tenor Jonas Burdis, and conducted by David Hodgkins. Now, as well as the three poems that you mentioned before, and we listened to the piece, you also include a, a refrain or a chant by George Orwell about politicians being corrupt and liars and thieves. What brought you to that particular
1: passage. <laughs> <laughs> politicians and crazy politicians, corrupt politicians, you know. Well, you see, I, I, as you mentioned early in the program, you talked about me coming to America 30, about 30 years ago, you know, 30, 31 years ago, I came to America to run away from crazy corrupt politicians from Africa.
0: Did you bring them with you? I
1: did that. I did not. And it just suddenly looked like I've gone full circle. I, you know, I, I said, "Look, I came to America to run away from this. What's going on?" <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm back to the line of crazy politicians, corrupt politicians, where common sense no longer makes sense, you know, so that's what that's about and and no one said it better than that George Orwell, Eric Blair, his real name, you know, people that elect corrupt politicians. we shouldn't be blaming anybody but ourselves.
0: They say the people get the government they deserve, but I don't that's right I'm not sure that we really deserve this
1: We don't deserve, but when you have a system where a majority rule decides whether that majority was rigged or not, it gets to decide, then we are all complicit <laughs> mm.
0: Does it make you want to run back to Ghana?
1: You know, I've thought about it, but it's, it's not any better anywhere. You know, there was a time when I thought China was uh, a possibility. And I found out China is not going to change tomorrow. It's gotten, it's actually, it's actually gotten worse, but I won't get into that. So we live in a very fractious world right now. And it's, it's very, very getting tougher to be hopeful, but I want to be always hopeful that things would be
0: better. You sound like a hopeful person.
1: (laughs) I am. (laughs) (laughs) I rest my head on the pillar of beautiful music.
0: (laughs) Well, and you allow us to rest our heads on it too. Fredo, it has been such a delight to talk to you. Thank you for all of the music that you put out into the world and for your optimism and for, for staying here in Missouri, in St. Louis and hanging out with us. I'm glad that you're here.
1: What an honor. Thanks for having me. I'm really, really, really grateful. I'm grateful. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Fredo. And that was the opening of the second movement of composer Fredo's Triptych of American Voices, a cantata of the people, performed by the Coro Allegra Orchestra of Boston, conducted by David Hodgkins, with counter, Tai and tenor, Jonas Burdiss. So, who gets to follow that? Well, none other than one of my favourite actors in Columbia, a relatively recent transplant mid-Missouri from Los Angeles. He is currently producing Love's Labour's Lost at Maplewood Barn, and you might have seen him in Columbia Entertainment Company's production of Dreamgirls last fall, or at Talking Horse Theatre's production of Boy at the beginning of last year. And he has an incredibly famous grandmother. Good morning, Richard Harris.
2: Hello, everyone. <laughs>
0: Well, welcome back to the show. I know that today you are here to talk about the Columbia Griot Society. And if we have time, I'd also like to touch on the famous black playwright August Wilson's seminal manifesto from 1996, entitled The Ground on Which I Stand.
2: Of course. Okay.
0: But... Before all of that, can we just spend a moment heralding your incredible grandmother, the unstoppable Opal Lee of Texas, the (laughs) loudest voice behind the calls for Juneteenth to be recognized as a national day of celebration and no less than P. Diddy's new bestie. So how how is it living in Opal's long shadow?
2: Well, of course, you're never going to get out from under that shadow. But, you know, it's actually, I like it. It's cool. You know, the breezes, <laughs> the breezes come in and you don't have that sun right on top of you. So the shadow is really nice. And I've been living in it all my life. And uh, she's been a, an advocate for Juneteenth all of my life. Of course, most of her life. But... uh It's something that is a long time coming, and I'm just so happy. I'm just so glad that everybody's catching up to her because she's been an advocate for this thing for as long as I've known life. So I am so proud of her, and I'm so happy for her. It brings tears to my eyes that everybody else is waking up to the fact that this thing needs to be recognized nationally as a holiday because it is definitely the time— The moment that there was no slavery in this country, when that general jumped off that ship and said, hey, what are y'all doing? Why y'all still have them out in those fields? Why haven't y'all let them go yet? What is this about? What are y'all doing in Texas? What is this? Are y'all still trying to make money off of these people because they can't recognize that something is going on in this world because they're treated as second class citizens and they don't know any better? Let those people go.
0: Mm hmm.
2: And that means a lot. That means a terrible lot.
0: There's still a long way to go.
2: Of course it is. But I mean, you know, you have to start somewhere. You have to first free people from the shackles and you have to free yourself from that sin, from that that guilt. Mm. You know, you have to free yourself to move forward, to have progress in this country, especially if you say it's the land of the free and the home of the brave. So I am so happy for this country. I'm so happy that it was so many other people outside of African-Americans that actually picked up the torch and picked up the, the pitchforks or whatever they picked up and said, hey, 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 enough is enough. Mm-hmm. Enough is enough. Let's move on. Can we please?
0: We have short attention spans these days. So I, I hope that we can maintain the fire and the momentum.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And I, I do love watching Opal chat to P. Diddy on video. And she's just like super chill about it. And it's like, this is, this is P. Diddy you're talking to. And it's just beautiful to watch. Most
2: definitely. When we talk, you know, we have, I have this... Um, Zoom thing that I do with her every other week on Sundays with where the family gets an opportunity to check in on her. She's dear to most of us. And so we get an opportunity to check in on her on Sundays. And this Sunday, we we checked in on her because she had done the two and a half miles of walking. And, you know, she's 93 years old. So, And the COVID thing is going on and she doesn't know how to social distance from anyone. And so we checked in on her and she told me, she said, now I was talking to the puffy, diddy, pity, bitty. I was like, mom, just be <laughs> quiet. <laughs> you know, you were speaking to someone that helped you gain a million signatures on a petition that's all you need to know he had that kind of pull
0: she's adorable yeah yeah so so the columbia griot society tell me what it is and how it came about
2: okay I'll, I, I let me see where should i start <laughs> first of all i started a griot society in los angeles while i was there in noho which is north hollywood where I actually went to school at a school called Actors Workout Studio. And I started this group because I saw that there were a host of African-Americans that were standing on the outside looking in, like myself, standing on the outside looking in at different plays, different... Uh, let me see. How can you put it? Um, just the door was just... Kinda cracked open for him, but not actually open because of the parts that were that were out for auditioning and to do and all of that. And uh, Denzel Washington, this is a long, this is a long story that needs to be short. <laughs> but uh, Denzel Washington getting the the catalog to do all of August Wilson's a uh, century cycle. Mm. Well, when I found that out, I decided that I was going to open it up to the, my community that we would all become experts at, at August Wilson at the century cycle. And the best way to do it is just start a, a rep troop that would take our focus would be on August Wilson. So it became no whole griot society. Of course, no, a griot meaning, uh, well, a, a sharp meaning for griot is that it's a class of traveling poets, musicians, and storytellers in uh, West Africa. And what they did was they traveled and they did an oral history for kings and queens and noblemen in the tribes of North Africa. So that's where the name griot comes from. So I made it Noho Griot. When I came to Colombia, I saw that there was... Uh, the same kind of uh, need for African Americans here that were trying to be creative as far as theater was concerned is to get together and start something together. And I decided that I would bring that and bring it to Como. I mean, rhyming, I tell you, when you're in hip hop, rhyming is pretty cool. <laughs> well, so anyway, Como Grijo, that's how it started. I just decided that I would have a mixer of African American and all kinds of actors get together and we would read plays by by diverse people, you know, not just African-Americans, but Asian-Americans and Latinx and all just reading those plays that were available and have a drink and just do it that way. And then the COVID hit and I decided to move it to Zoom. And that's how Como Griode started. Ooh, that was a long drawn out. <laughs>
0: So, when you and I talked last year, I asked about the possibility of there being a black theater company in Colombia. Is the Colombia Grio Society a step in that direction?
2: Absolutely. You know, the first thing that I did, well, not the first thing, but what I did at the beginning of this year is took took myself on the road to Kansas City to go to the Black Rep there and took myself to St. Louis to the Black Rep there and introduced myself and told them all that I was standing in Columbia and I would love to network with them and have the opportunity to audition and show you that Columbia, Missouri had a wealth of talent there and that, you know, reaching out to them to help me start that repertory theater, an African-American repertory theater here in Columbia. So of course, that's that's the first stepping stone is starting uh, starting with this Gria society where we could all get together and start reading together and start noticing who's who and see who was available and see who was, you know, interested.
0: Are you happy with the response?
2: You know, of course I am, because there, even though I was hoping that it would be a bigger response. You know, if you, if you go to Como Griot right now, you'll see that most of the actors are actually outside of Los Angeles, New York, and Atlanta, but there is this contingency that that are members that are here in, in Columbia. And, and that's all I needed Hmm. was a couple of people. And I have some great talented people that showed up. And so, I am more than elated that there are as many that I found here that's willing to uh, do the same work that I do.
0: Well, I wanted to touch on August Wilson's seminal speech that he gave at a conference, a a theater communication biennial conference. And it was such an impassioned speech that they had to restructure the whole conference to accommodate the aftermath of what he said. But one of the things he said was Black theater in America is alive, it is vibrant, it is vital. It just isn't funded. Black Theatre doesn't share in the economics that would allow it to support its artists and supply them with meaningful avenues to develop their talent. Has much changed over the last 25 years?
2: I think so. And uh, the only reason I say that is not because the patronage is coming from the other places are the same places or the status quo places that other theaters are getting their funding from. But we have patriarchs that, that come from the black community. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, what Denzel Washington is doing, what Spike Lee is doing, what even LeBron James is doing to fund the theater's Or to fund the repertory theaters around the country. You know, I I went to St. Louis African-American Black Repertory Theater at the beginning of the year just to see what was going on. And Sterling K. Brown, who is actually from the repertory theater there in St. Louis, and he's the guy that's on This Is Us, that black guy, he's actually from St. Louis. And he turned all of his attention to that black repertory. I mean, funding, he's lended his voice. And so I, I will say this, that there is a community of successful black people, Beyonce and, and Jay-Z and a, a host of others that have said, OK, since we can't get Coca-Cola to do this, since we can't get anheuser Bush to do this, since we can't get even though some of those people do st- stand up, you know, and, and, and give money when they can't. We'll do it. We'll help our own neighborhoods. We'll help our own community find art and we'll start funding it. And that means a lot that a person will turn back and lend a hand from the, you know, turn back to the neighborhood, which from which they came and lend a hand. That means a lot. So, yeah, I I could say, no, we don't get the same amount of money or whatever, but it's up to us. You know, it's up to, our own community to turn around and say, yeah, I'm going to do this. You know, it's not all about hip hop music. That's not all the art that we have available. You know, we have jazz. We have Wynton Marsalis doing things that he's doing to uplift that community. And see, you you notice that I am putting everybody under the same umbrella. That's uh, music, dance, and theater. there It all is art to me. And I'm from that whole community. So yes, I will say again, I think that, yeah, it's making a move in the right direction.
0: What has been your experience of the local theater community since you came here? Do you think we we have that passion and drive to make it happen?
2: Oh my God. I had (laughs) no idea. I had no idea the passion for theater, for, for art that happens in I mean, it was such a wonderful surprise to find out that from music, film, theater, I mean, it is vibrant. And there's like this community of people that are so, so attached to each other and they're so intimate with each other. And they're so passionate about the same things. I had to the first thing I did was got an opportunity to become a board member of Maplewood Barn. Community theater. I mean, they reached out to me and said, "Hey, hey, we got a seat for you. Come in here and help us to become a member." I see, we see you have a passion, and so yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by this community's attention that it has on, on the arts. It is, it is vibrant and it is, it is so refreshing. It, is, I mean, it makes my heart sing.
0: As a black actor coming here, what grade would you give us? Well.
2: I mean, it's it's kind of nice being the only one.
3: <laughs> I
0: do know a few others. <laughs> yeah,
2: I do too. But I mean, there's so many, it's so far and few in between that it's like, oh, uh, now who's gonna play that part? Oh, we know. It's going to be Richard. <laughs> you know what That's wonderful.
0: You have had some stellar parts since you've been here.
2: <laughs> I'm telling you, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm trying out for stuff and I'm just making it every time. This is wonderful. <laughs>
0: You're a great actor.
2: So, oh, well, thank you. But I think it has a lot to do with my enthusiasm. You know, it's like, Oh, we've been waiting for you to stand here. We have been waiting for you to come and be a part of this thing. Because I am telling you, this is not, it is not because somebody is trying to exclude you in Columbia because Columbia is not that place. This is the most diverse place. I'm telling you, it, the last time I spoke to you, I told you it reminded me of Austin, Texas and Austin, Texas is the one of the most diverse communities you are ever, and Columbia is not far behind. You know, I've, I've walked up on a lot of people with a lot of different outlooks in life and they, everybody's embracing everybody. So when I got here, it was almost like we've been reaching out for somebody like you this whole time. And now you showed up, please be a part of our community. You know that? So that, I mean, come on, you can't help but like that. <laughs>
0: Well, August Wilson also said, despite the radical shake-up he asked for, he also said, we can meet on the common ground of the American theatre. So it sounds like that is the kind of ground that you found here in Columbia.
2: Absolutely. Because, I mean, everybody that ev- I know that's ever been involved in theatre knows this one thing about theatre. It is definitely the mirror. <laughs> I mean, it is the mirror. It tells you, I mean, those, the plays... The acting is not necessarily acting. It's just like, it's just showing America a mirror. This is who we are. This is who you are. This is who we are. And that's what theater is. It it presents America to America. And it, it makes us uh, realize that we're all connected. We're all one people and that yeah, we have just like any family. We got some we got some stuff that's really bad, but we got some stuff that's really good too. And we need to embrace that really good stuff, but you have to know it all to know who you are.
0: Mm. And
2: that's what theater is here. That's what theater is.
0: So if somebody wants to get involved with the Columbia Grio Society, what is the best way to get in touch with you?
2: The very best way is to just go on Facebook. And find me or find the griot and give us a holler. Let us know that you're standing there and my door is wide open. If you have a passion like I have for theater, for acting, for that kind of thing, then the door is going to be open for you in Como Grio. You know, if you have a story to tell, if you want to be a storyteller, if you want to play a part in that, if you want to help the community in that way, then the door is open for you. So just go on Facebook, look up Como Grio. Society, or look for Richard Eugene Harris Jr. and friend me and let me know in a message that's what you're trying to do. And I'll, I promise you that I will turn my attention to you and see and unlock the door and let you in. And then you can play as well.
0: Well, I will put the link on, on the show's Facebook page too, so people can click on that if they want more information. Richard, it is always such a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much.
2: You're so wonderful to me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you, was, you were one of the first people that said, hey, hi, how you doing? Come on in here. Come on in here and have a cup of coffee. <laughs> Sit down. Let's talk about
0: it. <laughs> I remember seeing you on the stage at Talking Course Productions in the play Boy, and you were so, it was a great play. I mean, everybody was awesome in it, but you were very, very mesmerizing. And I thought, Who is that? I have to get him on the show. So thank you. It is a friendship that I have very much enjoyed.
2: Hopefully longstanding and we can continue to enjoy each other's company.
0: Indeed. Well, (laughs) Richard, thank you so much for being on the show once again.
2: Thanks for having me and have a blessed day.
0: And we are going to leave our final calling card of the day with a new man in the neighborhood who goes by the name of Mr. Mosey. And here to introduce us to him is the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Executive Director, Trent Rash. Good morning, Trent. Good morning. And it's a few weeks since we last chatted, and I know you are in the midst of the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Hot Summer Nights, Greatest Hits. But today, I want to talk about a totally adorable new project you just launched called Mr. Mosey's Neighborhood. Yes. So tell us, who is Mr. Mosey?
3: So Mr. Mosey is just everybody's next door neighbor. He is a gentle, kind man that lives by himself and he loves to listen to music
0: and he he wears lovely sweaters and he does. <laughs> he's very gentle
3: he is yes he has a strong <laughs> sweater game he loves to wear bow ties as well
0: and he's a very good friends with mr rogers i'm guessing
3: Yes, you know, I think that they are kindred spirits in many
0: ways. <laughs> <laughs> so how did Mr. Mosey's Neighborhood come about?
3: You know, it really is the the creative brainchild of Monica Cynical Palmer, our Director of Development and Marketing. She came to me kind of early on during this pandemic and said, wow, you know, it's really hard to teach your children, which I agree with <laughs> during this time. And she thought there's a lot of questions that are being asked. And maybe people need something or someone to help answer some of those questions to help children feel more comforted during this unprecedented time.
0: So I mean, were you hoping to fill a kind of musical knowledge gap or is this really all about COVID nineteen and comforting children?
3: Well, it's it's more than that. I mean, that is definitely the the catalyst for it, but I think it really is also teaching children about being more in touch with their feelings in general and also in in doing that, introducing them to classical music and how their imaginations and what they're feeling and what they're thinking can be positively influenced by what they listen to.
0: Now, you are a parent of small children, and I'm wondering, you know, at some point in our lives, we seem to, most of us, drift away from classical music. What is a great age to introduce children to classical music? And, and how do you get over that hurdle of, of having them drift away at some point?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I, I'm I not sure there is an age that's too young. You know, my older two kids both did a, a wonderful program called Kinder Music, which uses a lot of classical music along with movement and imaginative creative activities. And I think that's sort of a, a part of what Mr. Mosey is. I think part of it is teaching children how to be active, engaged, creative listeners while they're listening to this music. My youngest is three. And when I put on classical music for him, his initial impulse is to dance is to move, which I think is beautiful. And I think as we get older, we kind of think that, well, that's silly. I shouldn't do that. But I think we can learn a lot from watching a younger person and how they respond to that music because it's learning how to keep that same creative impulse as you get older and continue to listen to that music.
0: So Mr. Mosey's Neighborhood, episode one, I think you just put out this week, it's called Ode to Feelings. And I did chuckle aloud when you said composers have feelings too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so funny. How did you decide on the script for the episodes? Was it, did you do some workshopping with the symphony staff's children to see what kind of appeal to them?
3: So Monica generally does the writing of the scripts and she tests them out. Her writing partner is her daughter, Anna. And so she uh, runs a lot of things by her. And actually, in an episode coming up that we just filmed, a lot of what is in the script that Mr. Mosey says are words or things that Anna described when she was describing a particular feeling, which I think is really neat.
0: So how many episodes will there be? How how long is this series?
3: Yeah, so it's a 10 episode series. They are released every Monday morning at 9am. And the final episode will release on the 24th of August, which is right before school starts again. So we'll be talking about new adventures and when things start again, how we deal with that.
0: And you haven't filmed them all yet, then? They're not all in the can. You're doing this kind of as you go.
3: That's correct. So we're, we're, we are ahead of the game, of course, but we are um, also still fil- in the process of filming and editing and probably will be for a few more weeks.
0: Now it was a collaborative effort. It isn't only the Missouri Symphony, you brought in some other arts friends to help out. Who's on the team?
3: Yes. Yeah, so we are very fortunate to be working with Aaron Phillips who is a wonderful filmmaker, and uh, he's also doing the editing for the project. Tom Andes, who is a colleague of mine at Stevens College, he wrote the Mr. Mosey theme for us in about 30 seconds. He's just so brilliant like that. And then Audra Sergal, who's a dear friend and just a lovely human, she's doing a lot of the incidental music that happens underneath Mr. Mosey. So that's a really neat process because she's watching sort of the rough draft versions and she's writing little bits as I speak that makes sense to go underneath what I'm saying.
0: Well, let's listen to a little bit of the intro from episode one of Mr. Moses' Neighborhood.
3: It's been so good to talk to you too. Yes, it's been way too long. Yes, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Oh, hi there. It's so good to see you. I was just finishing up a video call with my friend Amy. It was so nice to talk to her. It made me feel really happy. How are you today? Feelings are really interesting, aren't they? You know, when I woke up this morning, I heard the birds singing and I saw the sun shining and that made me feel really happy. But as I kept going through my day, I thought about all my friends that I haven't seen in a long time and that made me feel sad. What do you do when you feel sad? You know, my friend Amy gave me this music box to help me when I feel sad. I think music has feelings too. Do you think this music sounds happy or sad? Well, it made me smile a lot. So I think it sounds happy.
0: I love the way that you turn to the camera. It's, it is very, I mean, it's so inspired by Mr. Rogers. <laughs> I love the way that you turn to the camera and put your glasses on and say, oh, I didn't see you there.
3: Yeah. And you know what that is every episode. That's how it starts with me, with my glasses off. It's a little different, but then I put them on and I, I'm like, oh, look, there you are. Here you are. And I welcome them into my home.
0: Now, you are, of course, well known for wearing bow ties, but you opted not to wear a bow tie in episode one. I guess we need to ask the reason why.
3: You know, that is like, that's probably going to be a question that will, will go down in infamy. Um, <laughs> I think that we were just trying to go for a very welcoming look. But I do guarantee that most, all of the other episodes, Mr. Mosey will be wearing a bow tie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that will be a relief to everybody that knows you. We're dis, yes, discombobulated yes. by the lack of a bow tie. <laughs> right. Now, in, in episode one, you feature music by the Conservatory, which is comprised of young players. Do you see Mr. Mosey's Neighbourhood as a vehicle for the Conservatory or more for the Missouri Symphony as a whole? I think it's
3: it's for the Missouri Symphony as a whole and in future episodes, you know it'll be the professional orchestra that you'll hear. sometimes it'll be a chamber group, so a small group of musicians. so really we're we're highlighting every part of the Missouri Symphony as a whole that we can.
0: Well, while I've got you here, I wanted to have a quick chat about what you see as the future for symphony orchestras around the country, particularly in this current time of debate about why symphony orchestras and audiences and donors are not more diverse. Mm. We are, when you look at the musicians in most orchestras and the donors and the audiences, they are predominantly white and the music most orchestras play, is it almost exclusively by, as I call them, dusty old white men. Um, <laughs> how do we make symphonic music and orchestras cross the the multiple divides that seem to separate them from the future?
3: That is a great question. And I will say that it's definitely on our minds at the symphony. I know that Maestro Kirk actually reached out to, um, we have had over the years, um, not as many as we We would like, but we have had black members of the orchestra and he actually personally reached out to them to ask them, you know, what can we do better? And I know for, for what I think we can control at the the symphony, it's definitely how can our board look better and how can what people see look better? So for, for me, that's the things that we can control are we can, we can make a commitment to continuing to engage and have more board members that are, are persons of color, or we can continue to look for ways to bring in musicians that are black or brown. And, you know, there's some really great groups out there that we could become a part of that um, look out for these musicians that sort of help them to find careers or to, to get careers in, in this profession. And um, I know that's something that's, that's definitely on our mind right now that we're, we're really looking into.
0: For me, too, it's about the repertoire that is played. On today's show, I talked to African, well, he calls himself an immigrant composer. He is from Ghana and Nigeria. He's called Fredo. He lives in St. Louis and he's written, he writes absolutely beautiful music. And he says, and at, at the risk of repeating myself to people that have been listening to the whole show, that If every concert hall could have a variety of repertoire from a different palette of music, from influences from all over the world, and that we could use the wealth of experiences that the immigrant populations bring to America, that would reimagine classical music, and that would give audiences something new to listen to. And I know Monica and I have talked about the lack of female composers, but really, there is no lack of female composers. There's a lack of, of desire to play their music, and there's a lack of desire to play music by black and brown composers. And that's something that I hear from the Mizzou international composers that come to town every year. It's really hard getting your work played. And I would love to see a different kind of repertoire. Is that also in your discussions?
3: Yes, you know, uh, my, my director of education and Outreach, we have had a lot of talks lately about adding a concert in the spring that would be a world music concert. And so they're actually at the university are a number of really good ethnomusicologist. And so I I would love to see a concert that celebrated different cultures, just like you said and that used authentic music from these cultures by composers that were writing them. I think that would be a great thing.
0: There is certainly no shortage of composers out there that are writing amazing music. We just need to have the opportunity to hear it.
3: Yes, yes.
0: Well, Trent, thank you so much. Or Mr. Mosey, I should say. Thank you very much. I know that Mr. Mosey's Neighbourhood videos are not targeted at me, but they are adorable and delightful. And I look forward to episode two.
3: Good. They are for kids of all ages, for all those young at heart. So I encourage everybody to watch them.
0: Trent, thank you so much. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. I always feel like I have so much to shoehorn into a single hour. And before I know it, time is up for another week. So once again, that is it for today's show. If you want links to Fredo's music, the Como Grio Society, or to watch the adorable Mr. Moses video series, I will post those links on the Speaking of the Arts Facebook page. Thank you so much for listening i'll be back next week with more news from the local art scene until then stay arty Columbia.